All right, we are back. We had a pretty full week of boxing, and we got a, We are full. Like it has been months since February that we've been on a big pay per view fight week. We're here. That we're talking about the whole pay per view on another podcast today. We're just going to focus on recapping the fights. We may touch on a little bit of the news, but um, Lex. We tried, we really tried to come in here and talk about boxing, and we've just spent an hour talking about basketball. So, um, my apologies to you for uh, just bombarding you, but we got to talk about Erickson Lubin, but um, and that card on Showtime. We got to talk about the Jose Betraza card more specifically for both of these cards. I think the undercard, what went down on the undercard, was far more interesting than what happened in the main event. So, let's start with Jerron Ennis. Jerron, he got a stoppage. He was the first guy to ever stop Juan Carlos Abreu. Give me your assessment of the welterweight prospect. What do you think of that performance last night? Do you think that this guy, he is elite, ready for that next level, etc., etc.? Yeah, I think uh, Ennis looked really good last night. And um, I liked what Abreu brought to the table. You know, like he wasn't. You, you know, he wasn't prime, I'd say, but he bought a lot of toughness and he he bought a certain kind of grit that you don't get from guys that are like willing to lay down. Like he threw that crazy nut shot. He tried to fight Jerron after the bell rang. And th- that kind of like that, that adds seasoning to a fighter, you know, keeps it teaches him to stay composed, stick to the game plan. And uh, I think Jerron Ennis proved why he is one of the best guys like under. 24 because he's 23 correct yeah he's 23 right so he's just turned 23 too he's he's climbing up the ranks as one of the best if not the best guy under 20 uh 24 I, i think first and foremost he's the number one prospect in boxing um there are certainly other prospects that look stellar but very few have the combination of just incredible athleticism Incredible speed. He's got power. But he's showing footwork. He's showing defense, head movement. And these are things that are hard to show as a prospect. Because a lot of the time when you're a prospect and you're getting these fights, these fights are meant to showcase you. And to give you a little bit of work, but really to showcase you and to build you. To get that confidence up. To, to get you to start believing in the power that you have. And, um, and this is showing that he's willing to do that and show off other aspects of his game. And like, it's crazy. You, you mentioned the nut shot from Abreu, which was completely egregious also on purpose. And I was thinking to myself when that happened, I was like, this is good that this is happening here now because this, the, the, the fight that Abreu fought was similar to the fight that Salido fought against Lomachenko. The only difference is like Salido was a, a legitimate world level athlete, you know, and when he was doing these things to Lomachenko, Lomachenko just kind of got caught with his pants down and didn't know what to do and was looking for the referee to figure things out. But the referee didn't have anything to figure out because Salido, as a veteran, knew how to work the referee. And he used every bit of it to his advantage. And it's a very similar thing where Salido showed up a few pounds overweight. Abreu showed up a few pounds overweight. I mean, Abreu showed up overweight to the point that they had to use the 10-ounce gloves rather than the 8 and that was a pretty major um, story going to the, into this fight where you had a guy who trained for to fight in 8-ounce gloves and all of a sudden on fight night, he's got to find himself in 10-ounce gloves against a guy who's never been stopped. And Ennis figured it out. And there's a lot of guys out there, young prospects that don't get to this point and they don't figure it out. 
You know, you look at guys like Dusty Hernandez Harrison who were supposed to come up and be uh, big things at welterweight, and it just didn't quite pan out. And so Ennis is Ennis really sh- like matured a lot in this fight and learned. And I and I think it was good that Abreu came in and he wasn't here to he, he was here to use every trick in the book, but also to take risks against Ennis. And it didn't quite pay off because he got himself dropped a few times. But the dude was willing to sell out and land shots, and he did. And I think there was really no way for Ennis to avoid that while still putting the pressure. I mean, if you're throwing punches and you're walking a guy down, you're going to be vulnerable at some point. And, you know, Abreu showed like, oh, hey, Ennis can take a shot. And he did. when That uppercut, he ate a shot and then delivered the uppercut. And that thing put um, Abreu down. So I was overall really, really impressed with what I saw from Ennis. Um, And... The question, you know, something that I see people is like from him, from from people on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen this. Is like they want to see him in with a top ten guy. They want to see him against one of the best welterweights in the world. And like, I'm curious, like, where do you see? What do you want to see next out of him? Well, I don't know. It's so tough because of his legal situation. But I, I do hold want on. Is not his legal situation, and this is in no trouble with the law. His promotional yeah. situation, where there are some pending legal stuff going on. Yeah, thank you for that correction. <laughs> Just want to make sure, you know. But um, but yeah, w- w- that makes it tough because PBC has like, I don't know, ten of the top fifteen welters, maybe give or maybe more. Top rank doesn't have anybody. But so what? What does that leave Ennis? And I was actually looking at Boxer earlier today. Who could he fight next that makes sense? Let me know what you think of this. But I wouldn't mind seeing him against Eric Bonet. Is it Eric uh, Bone? Bonet? <laughs> I think it's Bonet. But yes, I think that'd be like a perfect fight. I don't think he's with PBC anymore. His last few fights have been in his native country. Forget if he's Ecuadorian maybe, but, um, you know, that's someone who's been in with a couple of high-class guys. He's only been stopped one time to Sean. He's super cagey, super tough, super experienced. So, um, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing that. Just keep building his experience until, you know, he can make a decision about going to top rank or PBC whenever that time comes. And then, um, you know, we could see him in with the uh, the more higher level guys. Yeah. So you you alluded to his promotional situation and what's going on is there's a there's an ongoing legal spat between D and D Promotions, which is Cameron Duncan, who you may recognize as a former manager who has since took his managerial hat off and is now a promoter. And uh, so he claims that he has promotional rights over Jerron Ennis. But Chris Middendorf, who you may recognize from the illustrious career of Terrence Crawford, who had an involvement, I don't know if he still does, but he, up until very recently, still had an involvement in Terrence Crawford's, uh, at a minimum, earnings. But as, uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. And so they both stake a claim to Ennis's career. And at this point, nobody quite knows. It's up to the courts to decide who's the real promoter of Jerron Ennis. Now, I believe they should go on Maury and let Maury figure it out. <laughs> but that's just me. See, Listen, the- I have an idea. It just popped into my head. Maybe DeZone can pick it up and put on Canelo versus Oscar and Mittendorf versus uh, <laughs> Dun- on, on the same, uh, you know, put on the same card. It'd be decent. Yeah, the, the, that's a premier matchup right there. Um, so they're trying to figure that out. So Ennis 
it looks like for the foreseeable future is going to be tied to showtime. And that means, at least in a pandemic, it means that he's going to have to get time on these PBC cards. And and he was scheduled to fight on a PBC card, I think, at one point in the future. I don't know. Or maybe he did at one point. I'm not too sure. But um, at least um, it makes sense, you know, if Showtime has a deal with Ennis and they want to uh, showcase him, they can maybe you know, ask PBC for a favor and say, hey, your cards do better typically than Showbox, so you mind putting Ennis on here? And, like, I don't think PBC is going to balk at that. Ennis is a talent, and I would imagine that anybody would want Ennis, you know, to to be a part uh, of of their program. So that's that's the issue. I don't like the Eric Bonet matchup, and the the sole reason for that is I don't think Bonet's that good. And I don't, I don't think that he learns much from that fight. The, the other problem is that, and this is kind of in a weird position where there's a lot of welterweights out there and they're all going to be holding out to get a bigger fight. And there are certainly several bigger fights that can happen at welterweight. You know, a fight with obviously Spence and Crawford and Pacquiao and Thurman. Those are like the, you know, the big guys at welterweight. But you also have Sean Porter, you have Mikey Garcia, you have your Dennis Ugas, you have Danny Garcia, you have, you have this whole big handful of fighters where if you're, let's say, Sebastian Formella, are you, like, don't you think if you get a quick win, you may be another, you may be a decent opponent, a name opponent for one of those guys that I mentioned if they were coming off of a loss? Why would you want to go fight this young prospect who's really not that popular at this point when you could just fight your Dennis Ugas uh, should or, or let's say Jamal James coming off of a loss to your Dennis Ugas on a Fox card. I, I just think Ennis is now a super high risk, low reward opponent. And given his promotional situation, I don't imagine there's going to be a lot of money involved in Ennis for the foreseeable future as well. So it really makes me question what who would be down to fight Ennis. Because there's a lot of names you can pull out you know, that he could fight. You, he, he could fight uh, Abel Ramos, who just came up short against your Dennis Ugas, and that would be a good fight for him. You know, the 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 loser of Lipinitz and Abdukakarov, that would be a great fight for Ennis. Uh, if they wanted to, I, and I don't know if this would be something that they'd be down with, but like, let's say that uh, whoever gets his promotional rights they decide to just keep him within the Showtime and PBC family. Wouldn't Omar Figueroa be a pretty solid matchup for Ennis? Like, you know, that's a card where now he can headline. And there's some attention there. And there's a little bit of money that's going to be involved in that fight. Certainly more than the showbox level of, of opponents that he's been facing thus far. No, no, no. Absolutely. I mean, like, if he stays within the Showtime PBC universe and is able to access funds for his opponents... Like, this, the sky is the limit for him. I mean, Figueroa would be amazing. Ramos would be amazing. Dulorme would be a good matchup for him, Delorme too. Dulorme would be amazing. Jamal Jane. I mean, there's so many guys. Even even you guys. I mean, I doubt you guys would do it because, like, he's right on the cusp. But, like, I would love to see that fight. And I, I think it, this is kind of off topic, but I think it'd be a huge missed opportunity if he doesn't stick with PBC. Like, this, like to me... He has everything. Like, he's got amazing look and an aesthetically pleasing style. 
his family's in boxing. He doesn't seem like a wild person that'll get into trouble and do the wrong thing and come into come into a fight out of shape. And like, I think within a few fights, he would cross over super fast and become a money guy. So it wouldn't be an issue. But, uh, you know, staying within the universe is always tricky. You never know what fighters say, managers say, um, parents say. But um, the other issue that I can also see there, like if he were to if you the the other issue I see there, if he were to go to like top rank is over there, it's a little worse where there's a, a smaller list of guys who are vying for Terrence Crawford. And so there isn't that much opportunity like Kavalaskas. And I saw some people talking about Kavalaskas would be a solid uh, matchup for for Ennis. And, and I agree. It is a solid matchup. The only problem is Kavalaskas has a better shot at getting a rematch with Terrence Crawford than he does really banking anything off of an Ennis win. And so I don't really know what the game plan would be for him over there. You know, obviously, PBC has the deepest stable of welterweights. Now, if Ennis was at 130, that would be a completely different question. But right now, as a 147-pounder, it makes so much sense to stay within the PBC universe, uh, or at least he's not involved in it. He fought on the card, but it's clear he's got his own little situation and um, that's got to get itself resolved. I mean, the the real shame is if, you know, he can't fight on anybody's cards because he's got to fight on his promoter's cards. Um, that's when things become very tricky and he doesn't get to fight on these big, big platforms. And that's a risk, you know, almost all the top prospects in boxing are tied to to platforms and Ennis does not appear to be have a very solid hold on a home for his fights to be broadcast and that's kind of scary for when you think about like the landscape we have now where everybody's on TV and Ennis may be a guy where he can't build any momentum because he's just he, all over the place it's just he won't I don't I don't see him getting the opponents that he probably deserves at this you know stage of his career and I'm actually also want to ask you, like, do you how long do you see him making 47? He looks pretty big. Long time. You think because he does come underweight when he weighs in majority of the time. He's weighing in at like low 146, which is pretty good. But uh, he does look like a big kid. And we all we know where all the 54 work is at in uh, in boxing right now. Well, the reason why I think he's going to make weight for a long time is because they were showing the clips of his dad training him. And like, it looks like Ennis doesn't ever get out of shape. Doesn't look like he ever puts on much weight. So I think the fact that he's like basically training year round and always close to fight weight is one of the reasons why he's going to be able to stay at 147 for a while. You know, you, you think of a guy like Carl Frampton who basically blows up in between fights and you see a guy who's like five four i mean frampton's a very small guy like if he looks small on tv he's even smaller in person um but he's like looks like a tree trunk and that's because he is normally like a, a bit he's a thicker guy but also he puts on weight and that's why we've seen him rising up in weight classes you know, Frampton's a guy that was a decent size at 122, but not necessarily big for the division. Then he fought at 126, and now he's at 130. And it's I, I think Frampton's clearly out of his depth. Uh, the fact that he's a very skilled boxer is the only reason why he's truly having success there, uh, or will have success. I, I wouldn't even classify him as having success at 130 yet. Not much. 
So I think that's a major difference and that really helps uh, Ennis is that he's in an incredible shape and he looks to be in incredible shape year round. So no, I don't, I don't see, I, I think he's in, he's in for the long haul at 147. Why do you, well, do you doubt that? situation gets settled sooner rather than later because the skills are there. I even like, I don't know if you noticed some of like the Roy Jones Jr. stuff he was doing. He was like tapping his shoes with his gloves and stuff like that. Like he's, he's ready for the big time. He just needs to get that situation settled. It's, it's upsetting to be honest. Cause like, I want to see him take that next step, but not, not only that, I think, um, what he's really messing out on is getting the rocket strapped to his back to borrow a wrestling term. You know, when you have the guy who you think is going to be able to be the face of your franchise for the next, you know, five to 10 years or whatever, you put them in the position, front facing, um, they're involved with everything. You want as many eyes to see this guy as possible. And uh, that's what we should see with Ennis. Like right now, um, I can't like the, the just imagine like all the attention Vito Milnecki gets and I don't know what you think of Melnecki, but I think he's just okay. I think he's he's got a little bit of something. I'm not sold on him, but he's getting a lot of attention. Now, imagine they, they put that same effort into Ennis. Or, like, even if we go back, um, the you look at what Sky did with Anthony Joshua or what HBO did, Top Rank did with Zushi Ming, how they, like, treated this guy like he was going to be the next. Like, they treated both guys like they were legitimately going to be the next Mike Tyson. And one of them panned out and one of them didn't. But like Ennis is, is the kind of talent where at this point he should be getting that push. And until this thing gets resolved and until he gets tied up with the platform, it ain't happening. You know, who's going to want to get involved with him when you have no clue who's going to be the one who's truly in charge of making the decisions in his career? I, I totally agree. <laughs> I don't have much to say. It's just like it just sucks. You know, it sucks for him. It sucks for the fans. And even like, you know, I, I was just I was thinking about it earlier. If I was, you know, in that in Middendorf's or uh, Duncan's shoes, like I'd want to get it resolved sooner rather than later, because like this kid could have a future in pay-per-view. Like if when was Arrow's first pay-per-view? How old is he? Like 29? Yeah, he's 29, 28? I think. OK, so if Ennis just turned 23, mm-hmm. 24, whatever it is. I mean, he could be a pay-per-view guy by 26, 27. Like, he has everything. Like, he he seems so much more developed than most of the fighters his age because he, he's, like, 24 fights. I mean, he's going in there and, like, really establishing himself. He knows his style. You know, he's fixing little things here or there, but he's not learning as he's going along. He knows what he has to do in there. And that's something, like, I look for in young fighters. Like, I hate seeing, like, you know, like, I'm not trying to, like, dump on Devin Haney here but sometimes Devin Haney I think tries so hard to like look slick and box and it's like dude you're way better than these guys you're in the ring with just get him out of there get him out and make your point and Ennis is like he does that every single time and he's doing it against guys who haven't been stopped before and I know it's only going to get worse as he gets older he's going to get better and better and more dangerous and like his situation it just sucks man it sucks for everyone involved I just I'm eager for it to be over with and I mean, imagine if you're Showtime and we anticipate that Tank's going to beat Leo. We anticipate that it's going to be a big event. 
and Tank is going to very likely be a pay-per-view star. And what's going to help Tank is the fact that he's in a division where there are some other bright, shining stars that could be great B-sides for pay-per-view events. If you see that future for for Ennis, I mean, imagine uh, Showtime tying up both of those guys who are the next crop of pay-per-view stars. Uh, That... To me, for Showtime, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to help these these guys figure out how help one of these guys win so that you can tie this guy up. And you know, Showtime's done a good job building Ennis over the last two years. I think he yeah he debuted on Showbox in 2018, and he's fought on on Showbox now several times, and he's now fighting on like the PBC cards, which is Showtime Championship Boxing. So or I don't know if it was Showtime Special Edition last night. I don't I don't think it really matters. Anyway, let's move on to the main event. And that was Erickson Lubin versus Terrell Gachet. And Wait, what was, no love for my boy Kobe Abridi? We'll get to that. We'll get to we'll get to, okay, to okay, baby okay. Bradley. <laughs> but first, Erickson Lubin. Um what'd you think of this fight? Uh I think one thing that we'll all agree on is the first eight rounds weren't terribly exciting. The fight got real interesting. Uh, the closer it got to the end, Erickson Lubin won. Cl- some, I think one of the cards was, the, was fairly close. But um, what was your take on this fight? What did you think? Were you entertained I felt by bad. It? I felt bad for Lubin and Gachet because like, these are two highly skilled fighters. And they were playing like a, a chess match. And it may not be the most fun to watch, but that doesn't mean it's that still not a chess match. Both guys were showing skillful stuff in there. That, um, that looked like checkers the, to me. <laughs> Listen, no, they were both trying to work in there. I mean, I think uh, Gachet was looking for like one single shot a little too often. And uh, I think Lubin knew what was on the line. So he was being very cautious. Like he wanted that WBC mandatory and he wanted to impress, but he didn't want to make a mistake and like fall short like he did with Charlo. And I think like that combination of circumstance and style didn't get fun until the eighth round. But, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I like seeing the development. You know, I thought Lubin looked okay. I think Gachet is sharp. I just think he doesn't have, like, the uh, the temperament necessary to, like, get the most out of his style. If he had a little more, more dog in him, who knows? Maybe he wins that fight. So, I think he does have dog in him. You know what? I, I think the problem is that he's got the wrong trainer. And this is no diss to Manny Robles. But I don't understand how... He thought he was going to come in and outbox Erickson Lubin. And it's weird because, like, that's not the Manny Robles style. The Manny Robles style is an aggressive walk-forward style. I don't know why Gachet basically high-guarded and tried to throw one punch at a time for eight rounds. It made for a boring fight. He was clearly losing. Yes, he didn't get hit by anything major for, for the first eight rounds or so. And Lubin was all too willing to not throw anything with any sort of conviction. So... I, I thought that that was a poor style uh, or, or poor um, game plan from Gachet because you saw once he started to walk down Lubin, like things started opening up. Lubin didn't know what to do. And that's when we saw Gachet, when he was throwing with Lubin, he hurt him. And you think that if he would have done that from like the second or third round on, Gachet might have stopped him because Lubin did not look good. Um, for for that round when he got hurt. And it looks like uh, Lubin may have a little bit of a problem with his punch resistance. Now, he recovered really well, so I don't want to take that away from Lubin. He recovered well, and he did well. 
But I think that was a fundamental sort of error on Gachet's part. And then the other thing, I think I, I, Kev, Kevin Cunningham is very well respected and, you know, he must be a good trainer. But I think that it's, I, I, I don't want to be disrespectful with what I'm saying here, but I don't know about this, this game plan for Lubin. Maybe, and, I, and I'll, I'll say that this is probably what it is, Kevin Cunningham knows more than me, all right? But it seems to me like it would be better for, for Lubin if he wasn't so scared of overcommitting because Kevin Cunningham kept imploring him, don't overcommit. Well, what was Lubin doing? He refused to commit to anything. And so for eight rounds, Lubin was mostly throwing one punch at a time. And like he was always half in, half out with his punches. Like he threw the punch, but you could tell he was just like ready to get back on defense. And so nothing of note landed the first eight rounds or so. And when he started to open up later in the fight, like you saw like he could light Gache up and he hurt him. Uh, he hurt him late in the fight. And so I, I feel like here's another uh, perspective on it. Because even though I think that's all bad, I think that the way the fight ended was good. And, and overall, I think this was a very good fight for Lubin because one, he got hurt, but he recovered and he was able to, to, to fight through it. He did all the right things when he was hurt. And secondly, he learned that he could commit to shots that, or I mean, this is what I think. I don't know if he actually learned anything, but I did notice that he was committing, committing to shots. He hurt Gache. He was able to be responsible to close out that fight. And even though he had got hurt once before, was able to still be offensive without being hurt and not being overly cautious. And that's what I hope, because if that's not the case, and he goes to fight either Jermel or Rosario, the same way he fought Gache the first eight rounds, he gets stopped. It's like clear as day to see. You think he'll get stopped by both guys? Yeah. Mm, I don't know. Rosario is, you know, he's a guy that takes risks. And if you're willing to take a risk against Lubin, a Lubin who's scared to throw in combination, who's tentative in the ring, who's overly cautious, you're going to catch him at some point. And Gache caught him, and Gache's not a big puncher. I don't know. Ah, oh, man. I, I like Lubin a lot. And so I may be looking at this a little biased. But I was watching the fight last night and thinking, Gache can sh- punch really sharp. And if one of these shots land the right way, he may not be a big puncher, but he may cause some damage. And we saw it. I like Lubin's style right now. I mean, over the past two two fights that he's had, I'd say he's lost one round against what? two pretty decent opponents. You don't agree with that? Versus mm. Gallimore? How many rounds did he lose against Gallimore? Against Gallimore, he probably didn't lose a single round. How many rounds do you think he lost against Gachet? He lost a couple, maybe a few. Uh, I don't know. I didn't have him. I thought it was a damn near clean sweep. Well, he he did, you know, those legs got real shaky at one point. Yes, those legs did get very shaky. Now, I say all that to say this. I think his style, although it may not be the most exciting, is going to get him into the 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 championship level. It's going to keep it's going to keep him winning and get him ready to fight the more talented guys. I, I want to see I mean, we'll talk about this on another podcast, I'm sure, but Charlo versus um Rosario. Now, I think Lubin and Rosario, his style, I think, is all bad for Rosario. I think when you try to rush down Rosario, it can be dangerous because he could punch hard. But against a, a slick boxer, which Lubin is trying to do right now, 
I don't know if he has the IQ to keep up with that. Charlo, I don't want to see. That could be dangerous. Um, but the, but Charlo and Rosario have pretty similar styles. You know, Jamel has some real boxing skills that have not been fully on display in a while as he's transitioned more into a, a, a more walk-you-down style. But I think, you know, you're right that Lubin would probably match up better with Rosario because Rosario doesn't seem to be, you know, there's, there's not much finesse in there, which we know Jermel, he's got that in there. So that's it's a good point. But I, I think that ultimately both guys would catch him. So let me ask you, um, if you are Lubin's handlers, what, what would you do next? Uh, I'm calling up Al and I'm saying... I want the winner. So you don't think he should take another fight in between? Mm-mm. And I'll tell you why. Because if Jermel Charlo wins, that's probably going to be a pay-per-view, and I want to get paid. And if Rosario wins, that. and if Rosario wins, um, well, I, I imagine that if Rosario wins, there's a rematch clause, and he's going to fight Charlo again. Uh, but if Rosario wins, I think I can beat him. If that's not the case, and that's not on the table, though, if I'm Lubin... I want the next best available opponent. And, um, you know, that might be J-Rock. I like where you're going with this. And I think that Lubin could beat J-Rock. I, I, I like think where you're going with this. if J-Rock is going to have to be, be the aggressor, it's going to fall. It's going to be good for Lubin because J-Rock isn't the biggest puncher. Um, he's got He's got some pop, but he's not the biggest puncher. And so Lubin's not going to stand there like Frankenstein, like Jarrett Hurd did. Um, also, if I'm Lubin, I, I wouldn't be like opposed to Jared Hurd. I think I have the power to hurt Jared Hurd. If if J Rock could do it, I could too. You know, if you look at the guys that J Rock had uh, issue or not J Rock Hurd had issues with Austin Trout, he didn't really have the power to hurt him. Tony Harrison didn't really have the power to hurt him. Arizona Lara, you know, I, I think he had the power to hurt Hurd, but that dude wasn't able to put anything behind his punches because his legs were gone. But J-Rock did it, and I would assert that Lubin's got just as much power than as J-Rock, if not more. So I think if I'm Lubin, I'd stop Hurd. I like I like these takes. Um, I think a big thing with fighting Hurd is your your ability to handle mental pressure, because he's clearly a bigger guy than he's bigger than most dudes at 154. And if you could handle him leaning on you and and punching all over your body, you know you you have a chance to beat him. I mean, and, if you've seen Jared Hur recently, he's bigger than most dudes at cruiserweight. Yeah, he, he looks like he's getting ready for a Wilder fight, in my <laughs> opinion. <laughs> but I, I think, again, I, I like Erickson. I, I would hope that he could handle the pressure of a herd and, and deliver a good fight. I'll be rooting for it if I see it. Um, that fight would be awesome. J-Rock would be awesome. Um, to answer the question I ask you, I think I would line up for that fight too, uh, the winner of Rosario and Charlo. You know, turning down a big pay-per-view, it's like, that's tough. And the storyline between him and Charlo would be, like, amazing. Like, who knows? You know, like, the way boxing is now, you probably have a bunch of writers saying it's trash, but I would be excited for that. No, um, I, I was actually saying this last night. Uh, I was talking about this, and I said, I, I don't really care that much to see the Charlo Lubin fight. But I'm, like, a special case, and a lot of you guys who listen are, like, super hardcore fans, and you probably are similar where it's like you kind of you can kind of uh, you know you know where where it's going if Lubin rematches Charlo, but I think the story that you could tell there 
would get a lot of people interested. The redemption story. The fact that Lubin is still only 24 years old. You think about that. He he He's 24. Jerron Ennis is 23. Erickson Lubin's only 24. And that Charlo loss was three years ago. So I think for sure um, you could sell that. And if Charlo beats Rosario, you could conceivably put this on pay-per-view. You know, you have the storyline that you need to sell to casual fans. And um, I don't know if the doubleheader, uh, little doubleheader gimmick is here to stay, but I definitely think Lubin, Rosario, and a, on a sort of doubleheader bill could definitely be one half of a successful pay-per-view. And if not, like he goes back to Fox with, or even a Showtime event, you know, that this, I think it's still a, a big, you could make a big event out of uh, a rematch with Lubin. And there's so much bad blood there. Those like in a post pandemic world where we're back allowed to be within inches of each other. I think Charlo and Lubin have a wild promotion where these guys almost fight at a weigh in or a press conference or something. <laughs> Yeah, no, it would be it would be it would be a super fun buildup. I mean, we've seen Charlo take a bunch of shots at Lubin since the fight, and Lubin yeah, since the fight, he's still like, taking shots at Lubin. He's, you know, that's what what Charlo does. He talks with the best of them, and and Lubin he he's talked a lot about wanting to fight. I mean, he he you know like in the past week he says he just wants to win her. He doesn't care if it's Charlo or Rosario. But he's picking Charlo, and I'm pretty sure he wants Charlo to win because he wants that rematch. So, like, when you have a guy who, who really believes in himself, the people have no choice but to believe in him. Now, like, whether or not his chin will hold up to Charlo again, you know, that's that's to be seen. But I would definitely – listen, I'm buying all the Charlo pay-per-views if we continue to get them. Like, he, Charlo's on my list. Wilder's on my list. Tank is on my list. So, Charlo Rosario, I'm, I'm sold if it happens. I'm sorry. Charlo Lubin. Sorry, the the thing two. I think Lubin needs, because I think Lubin, he's, that chin, and it's not chin, that punch resistance is questionable. There's no doubt about that. But the one thing I think Lubin really needs is he's got to get somebody, He's he needs somebody in his camp that's going to be like the spark plug, you know? On, on NBA teams, there's usually on, on the good teams with ke- chemistry and all that, there's the guy who gets everyone hyped up. You know, he may not be the guy that plays a lot of minutes. He may not even be the guy that plays any minutes. But that dude is getting everybody hyped. And I think Lubin needs that because it would have been crazy if Lubin would have said, you know, I'm I want I'm wishing Jamel Charlo the best of luck and I want him to win because I want my rematch and I'm gonna knock him out in the rematch. I'll be able to do what Rosario couldn't do. If you'd have did that, we wouldn't have been t- we wouldn't have let off with, with boots. We would have let off with Lubin. And and Lubin want like I feel like Lubin wants to talk trash like this. But like he just don't have somebody to give him that confidence. And I wonder if the lack of confidence is because he's already been knocked out. And I also want to say, and I tweeted this, but I it's worth repeating. Shout out to Abner Mares. Like yesterday on the broadcast, he he was not at his best. You know, there was a lot of slip-ups. He he stumbled over his words a lot. But I will say the one part of the broadcast where I thought he was very good was in, right before the Lubin and Gachet fight. He was talking about how, you know, what it's like to lose in the first round. 
And he, he like, you know, he talked about like when I got knocked out in the first round by Johnny Gonzalez, he's like, it is tough to come back from that. And he talked about the mental aspect of that. And like, I never heard Pauly one damn time ever talk about losing fights. And Pauly lost a lot of them. He ain't never talk about no losing fights. Roy Jones Jr., I love him to death. And we all love Roy's commentary. And I hope in December that when his HBO contract is up, he comes and joins the Showtime crew. But I know one thing. Roy ain't never talk about losing fights. Andre Ward didn't lose any fights. But, uh, or Tim Bradley, you know, he don't ever talk about losing fights on on his uh, commentary. But Abner Mars did. And that really, like... You know, I would like to hear more stuff like that, you know, because usually it's just like guys lose fights and we think that they're broken. And then when they win a fight, we think they're fine again. And, you know, that was good to hear about, you know, where Lubin's mindset might be. And I think I don't know that Lubin's all the way back yet. Not I I just feel like there may be something missing in his confidence that if he had somebody in his camp there to get this guy hyped up and get get him all the way back, not only would Lubin benefit from that. But I also think that it would help him as uh, his ability to connect with fans. You know, I, I totally agree. I mean, a little a little trash talk always it goes a long way. I mean, clip goes on Instagram, clip goes on Twitter, and you have more people tuning in. It's just tough. The way he lost to Charlo, he was talking a lot of trash before that fight, a lot, and to get like decimated the way he did, it, it's like it could change you. And also shout to Abner for for pointing that out. But, you know, I think we'll get it. You know, the one thing I noticed about PBC is the way they match their guys is kind of like, in my opinion, non-traditional. Because they're not scared to just like, they'll throw you in with any style more often than not. They're not setting you up to look good. They're setting you up to have tough fights. And if you keep winning, you get rewarded. Because there, there's a lot of guys who, they're super talented with PBC, but they have, sometimes they look great and sometimes not so much. Like, Carlos Balderas, if he was with other people, he might not have a loss right now. Um, Chris Colbert, his last fight was against, um, I think it was a Dominican kid. Was, can you remind me his name, if you remember? Jezreel Corrales. Jezreel Corrales. That, that kind of fighter is a stinker. He comes in, he's not going to make it pretty, but that's a tough fight and it gets you experience. I think Gachet is another one of those guys where like it's not going to look the best, but you gain experience from it. And so I think Lubin's going to have his time where he could talk trash and be in the ring, flashy, you know, doing what Boots was doing, touching his feet, just the stuff that people want to see. It's just we're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Maybe next fight. Uh, Yeah, so I'm just curious if, like, if Lubin doesn't get the winner of Charlo Rosario, I don't know what he does. And the funny thing is, Jamel, or not Jamel, but the IBF title already has a, a mandatory attached when for the winner so um even if lubin was to get that fight next he's got some time because the ibf mandatory is probably going to come first but um let's talk about the other card that was or not the other card the other fight that was on the undercard and that was uh king tug nyan bayar versus kobe abridi um i thought that this was a really good fight uh it wasn't like all action for 12 rounds but I liked the story of the fight and how it progressed and how it the, the styles changed. I liked the storyline of Tug just kind of floundering in the middle rounds, coming back strong to close the fight, Breedy making adjustments. Um, 
what did you you wanted to talk about this fight next you were a little excited so i want to know what what you're excited Listen, about with this fight the fight i was dying laughing the whole fight because Breedy is like the ultimate hustle guy like it, initially i thought he was gonna get slaughtered and and by the way i have a tweet about this fight and i said people are sleeping on this fight i saw Breedy on the hogan charlo undercard and he beat uh, i forget this kid's name but he's a really good amateur out of new york he stopped him and i was like okay like one of Breedy versus king tug this is gonna be decent one of uh, Breedy's like Williams, three stoppages Say it, say it again. One of Breedy's three stoppages. Yes. But I just, <laughs> listen, I saw the talent. And he's trained by, well, Barry Hunter is a part of his training team. He's not exclusively trained by Barry Hunter. So I knew that he would bring a good fight. He got over those first two knockdowns. He made a couple adjustments, switched the distance, and, like, really was overwhelming King Tug. And I almost feel bad for King Tug because I've seen a lot of people in, like, Twitter land saying, like, oh, King Tug let me down. He had a trash performance. He's not as good as we thought. Let's give a little props to Breedy. He fought a really good fight. Um, I think, first of all, Tug, I, I don't know what people... So there's a couple of different things. Like I, I know what you mean about Tug, but first of all, um, people were like, oh, I thought he was so much better because of how he performed against Gary Russell. First of all, I, Gary Russell is, you know, an all right fighter. He's not elite. He's never been on a pound-for-pound pound list. I think Gary Russell, in his absence, and of, of which there are many absences that Gary Russell uh, participates in, he gets a little overrated by people. Okay? Wait, what do you mean? He, beat, he, he, he unofficially beat Lomachenko. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, I, I, wanted, I watched that <laughs> fight, and I really wanted to watch. I mean, I really wanted Gary to win that fight because I thought it would have been funny for all those people that made fun of Gary Russell and Gary Russell kind of like just got bodied in that fight. And, you know, again, so I've always kind of thought that, all right, Gary Russell's a good fighter. He's a world champion, no doubt about it, but he's not like elite, elite, you know, like if he fought Leo, like, you know, is he going to like completely just easily be the favorite over Leo? I don't know. And, um, so King Tug was okay in the Gary fight, but not like, and you got to remember before King Tug fought Gary, Gary Russell, who did he fight? He fought Claudio Marrero, I believe. Yeah, it was Claudio Marrero. And that was like a very just kind of ho-hum sort of performance. It was on the, the Thurman undercard, and maybe because Thurman got wobbled in that fight that everyone forgets that King Tug just kind of coasted in that fight. And then... King Tug takes a year off, comes back against Gary Russell. He grabs a, 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 a few rounds, two or three rounds. He wins, maybe four. And then he takes another year off. Like, King Tug has fought once a year for the past three years. And, or, or is it three? Yeah. He had fought once a year for the past three years until this year. And, uh, you know, he's just an all right fighter. He's not completely explosive. He's, he's, kind of action but he's prone to lulls in the fight where he, he like struggles and I don't know if that's like his his conditioning or whatever and that certainly happened like he started really strong I think Breedy thought like he was just going to come in and overwhelm him early and he just completely scored himself up and just got dropped a few times but when Breedy just stopped rushing in and stopped getting himself all squared up on the inside he was able to just basically outwork Tug for the middle rounds and 
you know, I thought the cards were right here. Some people complained about the cards, but I thought they were 100% correct. Um, Breedy deserved at least one of those cards. I wanted this to be a split decision. I didn't think that Breedy won the fight, but like I did think that Breedy deserved a card to let people know when you look at it. It's like, you know, King Tug didn't just come in here and have his way. He didn't come in here and just win win a decision. He didn't even win a 7-5 comfortable decision. He won a hard-fought, well-earned 7-5 type of style fight where, or not even 7-5 because without those knockdowns, it should have been just a maybe not even a win for Tug. This yeah, I, I agree. Fred was giving me Fred was giving me trash for saying Breedy might pull it off. Split decision. I mean, the problem with a guy like Breedy is he just is gonna work for twelve rounds and a lot of guys just aren't ready for that. And especially a guy like Tug, who you gotta remember, Tug's got that was only his twelfth pro fight. And he's not the most active. You see him at the weigh-in. You see him on fight night. He's not shredded by any stretch. So it's clear that he's not a guy who's in there just constantly working out, getting himself into peak physical condition. I mean, Breedy looked like that dude was built. <laughs> and so, you know, the one thing that I walked away with this in this fight is like, you know, Breedy's kind of nice. I want to see him again. I don't know that Breedy's going to um, be this have a run but I think I, one of the things that's kind of an issue with Breedy is he's, he's really small. That 61-inch reach, I don't know about that, man. <laughs> you, know, you know what would be a good fight for him is Oscar Escondone. Oh, I had a different name in mind. Who? Chris Colbert. No, 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 no. First of all, he'd have to move up and wait. And second of all, no, Colbert, that's easy work for him, I think. Escondone, the reason why I say Escondone is because he's probably the only one at... So, Escondone is 5'1 and a half. Breedy's 5'4. Breedy has a 61-inch reach. Escondone has a 66-inch reach. That's a good matchup right there. Two little tiny guys. And remember, Escondone is coming off that KO1 over Jack Tapora on the Charlo, uh, Charlo Harrison undercard. That, that fight that makes was itself... A, that was a good win. Unexpected, a good win. That fight makes itself like don't overthink this. People make the fight. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm all in on Breedy. You know what I mean? Like I like this is the cool thing that everyone around the the sport of boxing should celebrate. Like we have a new entrant to the sport who like he seems like a good guy. He, he, I'm pretty sure he's a part of like the the Bahamian military or something like that. He works hard and he fights. He has an ex- exciting style. So. I don't know. Like, I, I was hoping more people would talk about this. I had a lot of fun watching him. I'm down to watch him again whenever he's fighting. So I hope PBC gets him back in uh, sooner rather than later. He fights what, with a lot now, of heart. Well, let me ask you, what what's next for Tug? For Tug, well, it looks like he's going to get a shot at the WBC title. But I don't think you could realistically uh, make a rematch between him and Gary Russell. Like, I just don't think... I don't think Gary Russell accepts it. I don't think PBC would want to do it. And so um, I think what's going to happen, let me look up the ratings here, because I think the, 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 the play is going to be really simple. It's going to be Gary Russell vacates the title. And what the, does the WBC website have ads on it? Or what are you guys doing? 
<laughs> Why you've ad blocker on, giving you a hard time? Yeah, the WBC website is tripping. So that so here's what's gonna happen. Here's the play right now, okay? Jesse Magdaleno's one. King Tug is number two. Loretto Delamini is number three. Mark Magsayo is four. Five is Eduardo Ramirez. Okay. Eduardo Ramirez, if I'm not mistaken, is with PBC. Yeah. He's with PBC. He just stopped, or last year he stopped Led One Bartholomew on the Wilder uh, uh, Ortiz undercard. But here's a play right here. Mark Magsayo is also tied up with PBC. And so what I see happening is Jesse Magdaleno gets skipped over. Tug and Magsayo fight for the interim WBC featherweight title as Gary Russell Jr. pretends that he wants to move to lightweight. Um, <laughs> King Tug winds up with the WBC title when it gets fully upgraded. And there you have it. Jesse Magdaleno winds up getting a WBO shot at some point, And so he'll come out of the WBC rankings and everything will make sense. Looking at their rankings, featherweight is a little barren right now. Jeez. Yeah. But they could also make Eduardo Ramirez, you know, I, I, I imagine they could ask the WBC to approve that one. And, you know, that's two versus five. I think the WBC would find would be fine with that for the interim title. Don't complain to me, people, about advocating here for more titles. I'm not saying that this is what they should do. I'm thinking that this is what they are going to do, which is completely different. But I don't know. I, I see Tug getting that WBC title. Yeah, I think PBC, like you you always say, PBC is very predictable. They wouldn't have had that fight approved for the WBC mandatory if they weren't planning that. So, I mean, I think the path you just laid out would make a lot of sense. And I, I'm, I'm for it. You know, I, I'm still I'm still down to watch King Tug. I mean, he, his, his personality outside the ring is a little bland, but he's decent inside the ring. So set him up. I'm, I'm game to watch him again. Magsayo, I think, is going to be fighting on an FS1 card, too, in the future. So, you know, you got that to look forward to. I don't know about Eduardo Ramirez, if he's fighting anytime soon. I mean, you'd have to imagine that he is. Um, no, I don't I don't see anything for him coming up. Uh, all right, so on the top-ranked card, um, Jose Pedraza won a decision, and he looked very good, and obviously... You know, there's not too much to say because it's clear what's happening. They're setting him up to fight Alex Sacedo, and the winner of that fight is going to fight Josh Taylor or Jose Ramirez. Uh, but this isn't what people were talking about last night. I don't know if you had the same timeline as me, but what was the storyline last night from this card? F.A. Yeah. That's what my storyline was telling me. F.A. Jogba. Yes. You know, exciting heavyweight uh been moved along for his past handful of fights on PBC. And then he signed with top rank and this was going to be his big showcase. He's, you know, the co-main event for this Jose Pajaza card. And I was shocked because I was expecting people to, um, you know, as sometimes happens, the, the, the top rank fans out there were going to be, you know, very happy with the newfound, talent that they had gotten from PBC and unanimously across the timeline were people just slandering a Jogba and you know here's a question though I have about that because look we gotta ask yourself is this predictable from a Jogba do you think that this was a sort of out of the normal performance from a Jogba I would say yes 
Huh. I, so his opponent, I, I can't even remember his name right now. Can you remember? It was Jer- Johnny well, Rice. Rice, uh, Rice, like, this guy's fighting with his hands down majority of the fight. He's, like, sneaking in rights here and there. You know, Jogba has been, like, he's kind of, like, slowed his progress. His last few fights on PBC were pretty unimpressive. But this Rice guy did not look like a threat. I mean, the, the Jogba I remember, I would assume would walk through Rice. I mean, he finished uh, Kildazi, who much more experienced than Rice. And he just get, he didn't do it. So, like... You know, he's training now with Kay Karoma. Maybe he's adjusting to a, a new trainer. Or I don't know, maybe Ajagba just isn't what, you know, the the idea of FA is a lot better than the reality. I don't know. Um, Okay, so here's the thing. I feel like a lot of fans who are more partial to PBC were more excited about what, you know, the knockouts that Ajagwa was delivering so much so that they really ignored and, and, you know, I'm not just speaking specifically speaking about the PBC fans, but if I, I think a lot of people, whether you like PBC or not, if you were high on Ajagba, were really just bought off by the fact that he did get knockouts. And the reality was, if you watch Ajagba, like he was very unnatural Nothing was ever like supernatural other than he he punched hard. But I saw this with Ronnie Shields, you know, and, and one of the things I really like about Ajagba is that the guy just seems like he really wants to learn. But he also looks like a guy who had a growth spurt that went too fast. And, and you are a, a big guy who played basketball. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. But guys who, you know, they're a certain size at one point, they shoot up. And then now they just kind of have very weird sort of body mechanics. And a Jogba feels that way where he's like a big guy who's kind of stiff and he's not very fluid in the ring. And what we saw is that he had to box here and he's been, he was uncomfortable. And if you remember, um, was it on the Pacquiao Thurman undercard where he fought on Fox and he like almost lost that fight. Uh, was it against a Turkish guy? It was Ali Aaron something. Demorizin or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Demorizin. Where, where he got those super wide scorecards, but that didn't really tell the story of the fight. I think a Jogba, you know, there's a lot to be excited about because he knocks guys out, but the reality is there were flaws, and we saw the flaws specifically in the Kojanu fight. And you and and Ronnie Shields was trying to work on this guy being able to defend himself in the ring and, and throw in combination and stuff. And now Kay Karoma who we saw, who, by the way, I don't think is that good of a trainer. Um, Karoma's trying to teach him how to fight off the back foot. And I don't necessarily know that that's a good idea for a guy like uh, Ajagba, who's such a big puncher. And we saw an Ajagba who was more in his head than usual. And, you know, I, it, it just didn't work out for him. And it's kind of disappointing to see that this guy, Jonathan Rice, who came in with five losses, who was recently stopped by, you know, Dempsey McKean, who's just this random uh, New Zealand, or sorry, not New Zealand, Australian heavyweight. And it's like, okay, this should be the exact guy that a Jogba knocks out, and he couldn't do it. And so 
this is, I think this is kind of a bad sign for a Jogba. The good thing is that he's young, but like we don't typically see heavyweights really develop new game plans, new styles. Like you could think, you could maybe say like Vladimir Klitschko, but Klitschko was still very good, very athletic. I don't see that with a Jogba. Like, do you see any potential for him to improve? No, I think like the trajectory for a Jogba in my mind changed a lot after the Demir Demirizin fight. You know, like I'm I'm thinking about it like he's with Ronnie Shields, he's with Shelly Finkel, he's with PBC. They're kind of like carving him out to be like the next dominant PBC fighter, but fight by fight, he just looked less and less impressive. I mean, Joe Joyce pretty much didn't he smoke uh Kildazi in like two or three rounds? Um let me check box because I don't no, he did it in five rounds. So it was the same as a Jogba. Michael Hunter, five rounds. Konaki, six rounds. Yeah, but Joe Joyce, it didn't look like I was scared for F.A. in that Kildazi fight. Joe Joyce handled uh, Kildaz with ease. And then same with Kojanu. Kojanu was in there like fighting with the Jogba. So it's like fight by fight. Like he went from like potential next champion to like the guy that top rank will cash out on like Tony Yoka or something like that. And it's like, it's a little disappointing because, you know, I was rooting for FA, but, um, you know, he just might not be that guy. And sometimes that's what boxing is. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of sucks for a Jogba because there's, he's just like the perfect package of what a heavyweight is in 2020. You know, he's big, he's tall, he's got, he's rangy, he's got incredible power. But, I mean, he just kind of looks a little awkward. And I I feel like it's kind of like the NBA where um, the NBA got was always, has always been a league of big men. But we're moving into an era where if you're not a big man who at some point in your career, at least starting from high school or on, that you weren't able to handle the ball, like there's really not much space for you anymore in the league. You know, there's no traditional big man who, who can't, do guard stuff like that's now becoming rare and like you know tyson fury i believe is going to inspire uh a generation of heavyweights to really focus on movement the ability to defend yourself and to be able to box and it's not going to be enough to just get in there and outpower guys you you will need finesse and a jogba may be caught in that no man's land where he doesn't have that and doesn't look like he's going to develop that i mean look on the other side of this, if you get guys in there who are vulnerable to straight right hands, a Jogba is definitely going to knock these guys out. But that list is very short when we're talking about heavyweights with names or heavyweights who are at the top level. So let me let me ask you, what, give me a best case scenario and worst case scenario for Effie uh, in your mind. Mm. Well, best case scenario, uh, or sorry, a worst case scenario is that he's going to get knocked out by some random guy that top rank puts him in there. I would say actually the worst case scenario for a Jogba is that he's used as the guy to put Jared Anderson over. If I'm a Jogba. I was thinking about that. That would be awful. Yeah, if I'm a Jogba, that is not what I want. I did not come and sign with you guys to be somebody's stepping stone. Now, now would you, real quick, would you say that's a top rank move or is that like an exaggeration? That's an exaggeration. I don't think they would do that. I think they would try to um, try to grow both of those guys. Oh, man. I think that's on brand for top rank. But 
I would do it. I mean, to be completely honest, like it, I don't really see it with a Jogba. And so what the hell? Um, the best case scenario for a Jogba is that they can keep him away from Fury and, but he could get, have his name involved with like the, yeah, but we haven't seen Fury fight this guy. And that would require him beating guys who don't really have too much of a name, uh, or not, not too much of a name, but they're not that great, but they have a bit of a name. So like, I don't know, you dust off Tom Schwartz and see if a Jogba <laughs> could beat some guys that Fury has fought and he does it a little better. I think that's the best play for a Jogba because let's be real here. He ain't beating Fury. He ain't beating Wilder. He's not beating Joshua. He's not beating Luis Ortiz. Like these, these guys can actually move around the ring and do stuff. You know, a Jogba does not appear to be uh, on that level. Would would he beat a Dominic Brazil? No, Brazil got caught by Wilder. I mean, think about this. Brazil took a bunch of punishment from Joshua and kept getting back up. The shot that Brazil uh, ate from Wilder that put him away. There, there, are, there's probably only one heavyweight, one person in the world who lands that shot, and that's Deontay Wilder. Like that was a cold blooded, calculated, just super measure up straight right hand that was an enormous amount of like I, I don't know that a jogba can set that up and land it okay um you know could fury land a one two like that yeah but he doesn't have deontay wilder's power and so no i think brazil would probably knock a jogba out i think brazil world stars a jogba i i think what people don't realize about brazil is his dude is he's a big bastard okay this guy's six seven. He's he's uh he's big. He's I, I mean I saw I, I saw a, a Brazil at a fight and he was just dressed in normal clothes and I was like God damn that is a wall of a guy walking around you know and he punches hard you know Brazil has stopped eighteen of his twenty guys who he's beaten. Fred Cassie went the distance with him in a in a sloppy fight and then he had. Uh, some guy early in his career who went the distance, but it's feast or famine with Dominic Brazil, and I think he's uh, more skilled than a Jogba. Not to make this too much about Big Don Breezy, but I think he's the most disrespected heavyweight in the division. I don't want to say underrated because there's a lot of guys in the heavyweight division right now that are pretty good, but he's super. Like you said, he's super tough and he could bang. And I think like. When you're dealing with guys that are six seven, six six, six eight, six nine, that with power, it, it, one shot can land and it can change everything. A job is robotic. About and oh, I'm sorry, say it again. He's robotic, and I think a lot of heavyweights would be able to figure out his timing. You know, Joe Joyce. I I I, I think Joe Joyce is a meme, but I think Joe Joyce would beat a Jogba. I think Joe. What he does not get credit for is that even though he's slow as hell. He's got a rhythm to him, and he can find those shots. And a Jogba, I think he gets figured out by a guy like by Joe Joyce. You know, Robert Hellenius. If the, the thing is, a Jogba for sure loses to anybody who eats a shot and is like, oh, this ain't that bad. And I don't think that there's a, a long list of guys who can eat in a Jogba shot and they're like, yeah, this is I'm cool with this. Um, I, you're like, I'd be down to trade a little bit with this guy. But 
anybody who is down for that and like a Jogba can't just straight away put to sleep, those guys will figure a Jogba out. Like I think Robert Hellenius, if Hellenius could, you know, he eats a shot from a Jogba and is like, all right, all right, you know, I got to watch out for him. But like, I know this guy's not going to put me unconscious. Um, Hellenius like stops a Jogba. That would be like Twitter, boxing Twitter would explode. If Hellenius stopped a Jogba, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, Hellenius is going to be the the prospect killer if, if he were to do that. He might be. He might be the uh, the heavyweight clay collar. All right, settle down now. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, things don't really look good for a Jogba right now. And the, the hope is that he can, you know, get right the ship. But right now, they're going to need to feed him a steady diet of guys who maybe bring only one thing to the table because anybody with uh some real skills is just they're gonna they're gonna figure a jogba out and that's the thing he's so predictable like all he's got is his jab his straight right hand and that's really it listen i'm 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 overly pessimistic with top rank because just like from watching them for years and years and years i don't trust that they'll ever take care of two fighters at the same time it's always like here's our guy everyone else is like cannon the fodder or just food and so yeah i don't think it's going to end well for fa at top rank i definitely see him being set up to put someone over who i don't know yet but yeah i think that's um i mean look bob aram is shrewd he knows what he's doing and i think that's probably he watched that fight and he's just like uh i see we don't have it with this guy <laughs> i i mean i'd be shocked if bob did it doesn't already know this by the way I feel like he probably looked at his fights on PBC and was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. What we got here is we got a puncher who will, we can make him into a bit of a fan favorite with the knockouts, but it's only to serve the purpose of making this guy, you know, say Jared Anderson, into a star. That's probably, you know, how I would look at it if I was top rank. And so, That's, yeah. Go on. No, I was just going to say that... that to me, it's top ranks go-to move. It's it's happened pretty often. I wouldn't be shocked to see it again. Yeah, and I mean, look, they're not wrong with this this one. It's not like they're they've misunderstood a fighter, and they're setting him up for for the kill. I don't think that's the case here. I think they're one hundred percent right in the decision that they if they've made this decision with the Jogba, and you know they're smart. I they I think they know what they do they're doing. And I believe that this is probably what's going to happen. So those are the fights this, today. And that's all for this for this episode. This episode was just a little recap because we, on our next episode, will be the preview of the Charlo pay-per-view. We may touch on a little bit of news, but mostly we'll talk about the Charlo pay-per-view. And, you know, there's a lot of things to talk about it. Like, is this going to work? Do we think that, like, have they actually done a good job promoting it? Um, have we seen enough commercials and promotion for that pay-per-view that we think it's going to be good and all that stuff that's all going to be on our next episode so i hope you guys enjoyed this one so a quick recap even though i think we talked for like an hour and uh tomorrow will be the charlo centric preview and we may have to talk about some canelo stuff because i saw some a new development uh tonight not what you think but there's a new development and it's a funny one so that'll be on the next podcast. So Lex, any final words for you? That's it. You know, 
Yo, shout out to my man Breedy. Hey, get your seventy five dollars ready. Get ready for next week. We lit. It's Lions only. All right. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, definitely leave us a rate, a rating, or review. A good one. If you leave us less than five stars, uh, don't hit that submit button. You should message me on Twitter and tell me what is it we need to do to win your love over and to earn that five. Okay, we're down to earn that five. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, And we will be back very soon.